This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Welcome to Plated Earth, where we share at least a fraction of the crazy, wonderful, and insightful stories of produce. I'm your host, JJ. Plated Earth is also the official podcast of the Specialty Produce app. Please show your support for us and Specialty Produce by downloading the app and exploring one of the globe's most comprehensive fresh food databases. Now grab a snack and get ready for Food Fables, where we share original short fiction stories about produce and its connection to people, culture, and more. Winter at the original farmer's market in Los Angeles always attracts a crowd foraging for produce gold, citrus. With winter came flu season, and in preparation, many would stock up on their oranges and lemons. Dimitri loved how the fruit's vitamin C content was such common knowledge, and so many people shared with him their own family home remedies for colds, some as simple as lemon juice mixed in hot water with honey. Dimitri would teach the citrus hunters about the varieties of lemons. Yes, it's more than just a lemon. Even those crates of common lemons in your grocery store are likely to be two different, though very similar, varieties, Lisbon and Eureka. But there are so many others to explore. And if you're searching for gold, Dimitri would pick up a Meyer lemon, smiling at the fruit like it were a close friend, then hand it over and have the market goers hold a Meyer and Eureka lemon side by side, calling them to notice the nuances that differentiate them. Having them smell the peel, eyes closed, to catch those bergamot-spiced hints of the mire, a more complex scent. As Dimitri walked the market, talking over the different citrus, his following slowly multiplied. Taking a few lemons with him, he made his way to the community tables. He set the fruit down, the crowd taking their seats. Dimitri made a few trips to the pie shop, first bringing a few slices of apple pie, then a pitcher of apple cider then some small glass cups, a pitcher of water, and finally a single piece of paper and a dip pen, which he tucked into his shirt pocket underneath his suspender strap. The crowd watched and waited patiently, not touching the food on the table. Lemons were not always known for their vitamin C content. In fact, vitamin C itself was not always known and understood. How far we've come, what knowledge we've gained, and how that knowledge has changed us. Dimitri finally sat at the table. Food has been used in so many ways throughout history, and more than just consumption, though that is surely a vital role. Oh, but how it has influenced the course of history and inspired growth in human methodology. Take this fruit. Dimitri held up a lemon to the crowd. Lemon juice has been used for centuries to make invisible ink. As far back as 600 CE, It was used in the Arab world to deliver secret messages between desert towns. By the 16th century, lemon ink became popular in Europe, used by secretive Renaissance Italians to monasteries protecting their trade secrets. As Dimitri spoke, he pulled his pocket knife from his pants pocket, cut open the lemon, and squeezed its juice into one of the small glass cups. He drizzled water into the glass, swirled it in his hand. He wet the dip pen with the mixture and began writing on the piece of paper. Of course, invisible ink has a linked history with war, as it was a standard supply for spies. Lemon juice was used in the American Revolution, the American Civil War, 
and in both world wars. Perhaps the most famous story surrounding Lemon Juice Inc. is that of the Lemon Juice Spies of World War I. There was a group of Germans in Britain who were using lemon juice to try to send secret messages during the war. The British had stepped up their censorship of letters in wartime and soon caught on to the group's tricks. A raid of one of the spies' homes led to some incriminating evidence, a lemon filled with poked holes by a pen nib. Another one of the spies was caught with lemons in his coat pocket. The crowd giggled. One of those convicting lemons can actually still be found in the British National Archives, though it doesn't look much like a lemon anymore, blackened and roughly the size of a walnut. Dimitri brought his forefinger and thumb close together to demonstrate the shriveled size. That group of Germans has since gone down in history as the Lemon Juice Spies. The invisible ink game between the Germans and the Brits continued into World War II with more sophisticated invisible ink methods. Still, some used the vintage technique with lemon juice, especially prisoners of war, who used lemon juice ink to communicate with those back home, despite everyone knowing the trick to uncovering such secret messages. Dimitri walked the paper over to the pie shop, opening the hot oven and holding the paper in front of the warm waves that flowed. After just a few moments, he returned to the community table and placed the paper in the center, which read Explore in dark brown ink. Just add a little heat. Dimitri smiled as one of the kids reached for the paper and held it in front of his face in amazement. Food has played a much larger role in human history than most people would guess, Dimitri continued. It's amazing the influence it has had throughout history, shaping our world as we know it today. And this... Dimitri again held up a common lemon, bringing the peel to his nose and inhaling a slow, satisfying breath. This innocuous little citrus fruit has even been attributed to the defeat of Napoleon. What? Someone from the crowd gasped. Lemons were at the Battle of Waterloo? Was it a food fight? One of the kids asked excitedly. <laughs> oh, no, no. Lemons helped to defeat Napoleon long before that battle even took place. The crowd looked equally puzzled and intrigued. Dimitri traded for a Meyer lemon, again pulling out his pocket knife to cut the fruit open. He peeled a segment from the pith and popped it into his mouth with another gasp from part of the crowd. He simply winked, and, as usual, with a wipe of his napkin across his lips, like a curtain unveiling the opening act, Dimitri began his story. Dimitri spoke. 18th century in the United Kingdom. The Royal Navy was engaged in a long struggle with the French Navy for maritime power. Britain reigned supreme in many conflicts from 1688 to 1763, and yet a bigger battle was continually being lost on board their own ships to a different, elusive enemy, scurvy. Scurvy results from a lack of vitamin C, causing its victims to feel weak, bleed from their gums, and become vulnerable to infection, as even old wounds would break down unable to fight against contagion. As the disease progresses, it can cause hallucinations, and many people plagued by scurvy went blind before passing away. The first written account of a disease likely to be scurvy dates back to 1500 BCE in Egypt. Writings of Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine from ancient Greece, also indicate the presence of scurvy long before the Common Era. Yet the disease was never really prevalent or problematic in Europe until advances in naval technologies allowed ships to extend their stay at sea. They soon discovered, however, that any longer than six to eight weeks out on the ship, 
and the sailors were likely to develop scurvy. Causation and cure were unidentified at that time. The disease was often called winter sickness in the colonies of the New World, as the only apparent precursor was the cold. But Royal Navy sailors found that it wasn't about the cold. It was that chill, running up and down the spines of each sailor aboard the Royal Navy ships, wondering if and when their closest enemy would strike. The longer they remained at sea, the greater the fear grew among them, until finally manifesting in the symptoms as the enemy revealed itself, justifying the fear, inciting panic. The ongoing battle with the disease took more lives of Royal Navy sailors than enemy action. And the British sailors were not alone. In fact, the first record of sea scurvy comes from a Portuguese explorer named Vasco da Gama. In 1497, he set sail with 160 men to discover a route around the Cape of Good Hope to the East Indies. And on the journey, he lost almost 100 of his sailors to the dreadful disease. In 1740, when England was at war with Spain, Commodore George Anson set off on an expedition of the Royal Navy, armed with 1,955 men, ready to attack Spanish ports in South America. Anson returned in 1744 from this go-around of the globe with just 145 men, only about four of who died in battle. Most of the rest perished from scurvy. This brutal toll thrust the issue of scurvy into the forefront of public concern, and yet it was not at all unusual. During the Seven Years' War, from 1756 to 1763, the Royal Navy enlisted over 184,000 sailors. More than 133,000 were lost, and only about 1,500 died in combat. The deadly disease struck most of the rest. Still, it was Anson's tale that sparked the first randomized controlled trial by a Scottish Royal Navy surgeon named James Lind. In 1747, after eight weeks at sea on HMS Salisbury, James Lind witnessed an outbreak of scurvy. But instead of standing idly by, Lind decided to put the disease to a test. Lind took 12 sailors who were infected and who showed the most similar symptoms— Dimitri paused from the story and slowly stood up, motioning for a few of the kids who were gathered in the crowd to come stand beside him. Six kids in total came rushing over, and Dimitri had them line up. Dimitri continued. He put them together in the same part of the ship and gave them the same diet so that these variables would be constant across the group. As Dimitri spoke, he handed each kid in line a slice of apple pie. He then divided them into six pairs, giving each a different treatment, the only differentiating variable. One pair had to drink seawater every day. Dimitri poured two glasses of water for the first two kids in line behind him. Another drank cider. He poured the apple cider for the next two kids in line. And the rest had their own unique prescriptions. And for one of those pairs of sailors, that meant eating two oranges and a lemon every day. Dimitri handed a lemon to the final two kids in line. After six days of this trial, one of the sailors that had been eating the citrus recovered and returned to duty. Dimitri put his hand on the shoulder of the first kid with a lemon, who flexed his arm with a healthy growl, causing the crowd to laugh, and Dimitri too. Dimitri motioned for him to return to his seat. The other was deemed well enough to help tend to the remaining ten sailors. Dimitri handed the other boy more lemons, 
instructing him to give one to each of the other four kids in line before they all returned to their place in the crowd. Dimitri continued. Lind wrote a treatise describing this crucial experiment and its proof that lemons and other citrus could cure the dreadful disease. It was published in 1753, but amid admiralty ego and political bickering, the treatise was not recognized or even hardly acknowledged by the Royal Navy at large. It took decades of work by other proponents to fight for the adoption of lemon juice into the Royal Navy. By the end of the 18th century, just after Lind himself had passed away, gallon after gallon of lemon juice was brought aboard the Royal Navy's ships and mandated for British sailors to drink on their longer and longer excursions at sea. Lemon juice was sometimes substituted with lime juice for the sake of cost, and perhaps that's how British sailors came to be nicknamed limeys, though the name doesn't give enough credit to the equally important lemon. Before the Napoleonic Wars even began, the little lemon had led the charge for success on part of the British sailors, eradicating the disease that would surely have stopped the strategy that proved essential for British victory, the coastal blockade. During the wars against the French under the command of Napoleon, the British implemented a blockading system of warfare, maintaining a coastal barrier that rendered the French Navy virtually powerless. The blockade work was tedious, but also at times dangerous. The Royal Navy ships kept close to shore so they could watch the French ports day and night. They used signal ships to notify their main fleet that waited just over the horizon if the French Navy tried to make a move. These Royal Navy ships and the sailors on board had to be stationed for months without relief. This longevity was remarkable. No ship or sailor could last more than eight weeks at most when scurvy was at sea. Without the lemon's ability to subdue the deadly disease, the blockade simply could not have been sustained. Sailors would have been stricken down, or the strategy would have been deemed impractical in the first place. Napoleon's fleet could have disrupted British trade, and more importantly, it would have opened a pathway for his forces to invade Britain. Instead, the blockade gave the British freedom to trade all over the globe, helping finance their armies, as well as those of other allied European nations, and at the same time hindering France's own trade. It forced Napoleon to order the Continental System, a foreign policy designed to paralyze Great Britain's commerce through a boycott against its trade. Napoleon invaded both Spain and Russia trying to enforce this embargo, the beginning of his downfall. He lost some 500,000 troops in Russia in that catastrophic invasion, and at the same time, the Spanish and Portuguese drove his forces out of the Iberian Peninsula. From there, the downfall was all but inevitable. Paris was captured by coalition forces in March of 1814. Napoleon was forced to abdicate the throne the following month and was exiled to the Mediterranean island of Elba, the first of two abdications and banishments, as he did escape and return to France in 1815, but was soon defeated indefinitely at the Battle of Waterloo. For the rest of the 19th century, the Royal Navy helped administer a long period of, for the most part, peace. This came from a balance of power between the major European nations, which ultimately depended on the British maritime supremacy. And to think how differently this story could have unraveled without the harmless little yellow lemon. No matter how much weight you give its role, it's hard to deny that its role did exist. It made a difference, with the help of other key players, of course. Like Lind, 
who helped prove the power of food to nourish, protect, and heal the human body. And the lemon is just one little fruit, yet its trail can be traced throughout time, across nations, its footprints covering the earth, guiding us into the future, and reminding us of the past. Wherever you are, wherever you stand, look at the ground below you. Whose footprints are you standing in? The end. Well, folks, that concludes this week's episode. Be sure to follow at Specialty Produce App on Instagram for some amazing produce photos. And while you're on there, give us a follow at Plated Earth. Tune in next time for the latest food buzz. And remember, cauliflower is nothing but a cabbage with a college education. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.